He said he did very little with 21, and uh, he suggested that I either take 21 and 23 or 21 and 23. But uh, I felt maybe it would be better to take 21 and then let him go on with uh, 23 because he took 22 last time quite extensively, but uh, he didn't take 21. He said he kind of skipped over 21. 21 is a hard chapter. Uh, and uh, so I felt that uh, we'll try to take this, this chapter. <coughs> and uh, we won't read it all as I right now, but I uh, hope we'll read most of it before the evening's over. I'm often criticized for preaching too much. I won't preach too much tonight, I don't think, I don't know, but uh, uh, <laughs> I think we'll do a little more teaching tonight than uh, maybe usually. Chapter 21, the book of Genesis. It's a great book. <clears throat> And the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord said unto Sarah, as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. And at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. And Sarah said, God hath made me laugh so that all that hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have nursed children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And we bow our heads in prayer. As we come before thee tonight, Lord, after a busy day, seeking to be fed from thy word. Lord, we're very concerned about the physical food that we eat. But just as the physical food nourishes our physical bodies and enables us to live and serve thee, just so, spiritual food feeds and nourishes our spiritual lives and enables us to live over and above our difficulties and trials, enables us to live in close fellowship and communion with thee helps us to do thy will and thy work. Oh, how necessary it is that we study.
and meditate and pray over thy word so that we may be thoroughly furnished for all good works. Give us a hunger for thy word, we pray. Bless each one who is here tonight. Bless them in their various relationships at home and at work and in the church. Lord, if there are those of our number that are in special need tonight, we pray that you'll minister unto them. We pray too, Lord, that thou wilt bless Dr. Crichton there in Nashville speaking in this Bible conference. We pray that you will gird him and anoint his lips and heart that he may speak with great power and conviction, Lord. We thank thee for him. We thank thee for the school. And we pray that you will bless us also tonight as we meditate upon thy word. These things, Lord, we ask in thy name. Amen. This chapter, the 21st chapter of Genesis, naturally divides itself into three parts. You have first the birth and the growth of Isaac. I know, Dr. Crichton, if you want to follow some of these notes, on the, the night before last, Dr. Crichton had uh, this passage very well outlined. That's one reason I'm not taking a lot of time to outline it, because on uh, the night before last, uh, when he was speaking in chapter 20, he also put at the bottom of the page uh, an outline of chapter 21. Although he said he didn't cover it, so he asked me if, uh, if I wanted to, would I say something about it? And uh, knowing that uh, he uh, likes to teach his own courses, and I don't blame him, I do too, uh, that uh, I was going to leave 22 and I'll go back and pick up uh, an idea or two in 21. This chapter divides itself first into the birth of Isaac, the first eight verses. The birth of Isaac in the first eight verses. Then uh, from 9 to 21, from 9 to 21, you have the relationship between Hagar and Sarah. You have the relationship between Hagar and Sarah. And uh, how that uh, the law says, cast out Hagar and her son. And you remember, and we'll take this up shortly, the uh, Paul in the book of Galatians, Paul in the book of Galatians develops this analogy. A very difficult passage also in Galatians. And we'll try to simplify this and get a truth or two from this. Then you have, then you have Abraham at Beersheba. He makes uh, an alliance with Abimelech. He makes an alliance with Abimelech. Um, and this sets the stage. This sets the stage for chapter 22. This experience is the final, ultimate experience of, and discipline in the life of Abraham that enabled him, that enabled him to offer up his son in chapter 22. You don't understand really fully 
the uh, who, what Abraham had gone through until you study this chapter 21. It's most important as a preparation for 22. So we'll take this up uh, just uh, quickly. The birth of Isaac was a watershed. The birth of Isaac was a continental divide in the life of Abraham. You remember Abraham way back in Ur, we have the awakening of his faith. When he heard a voice and say, Get thee out of thy land and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show you. That's back in the early chapters of this book, chapter 12. Then, after Abraham settled in the land, it took him quite a while, you remember, to get into the land of Canaan, as he stayed quite some time at Haran. And then he comes into the land, and you have this period of discipline, the discipline of faith. First the awakening of faith, then there was the discipline of faith. And for 25 years, God told Abraham and Sarah to stay put, stay in the land, and trust me. And you, Sarah and Abraham, will have a son. Now, day by day and year by year, Abraham and Sarah were getting older and older. At this time, Abraham and Sarah were close to 100 years old. They were no longer having children. She was barren. Sarah was barren. And now, according to the promise, Isaac comes along. And from now on, till the end of Abraham's life, you have, you have the perfecting of faith. The perfecting of faith. Abraham's life can naturally be divided into three parts. Uh, much of the scripture is devoted to Abraham. He was the father not only of the Jews, according to the physical line, but also the father of all who believed. Abraham was a unique character, and that's the reason why the Bible spends so much time with him. The awakening of faith from the time in Ur up until the time when he settled in Canaan. The discipline of faith while he was waiting the 25 years for his son. Then the perfecting of faith from this time till his death in chapter 25. So this is a division, an important division of an important experience in the life of Abraham. And the Lord said, visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. The Lord visited Sarah. This word visited is used in different ways and as far as scripture is concerned. It is used to bring a curse when God sent the flood 
he visited the world. As he sent the destruction to Sodom and Gomorrah, he visited. But it is also used as a means and method of blessing. God came down and touched Sarah. This was a tremendous experience. There for years, Sarah had not biologically been able to have children. She had grown beyond that age. And now God, supernatural, came down and touched her life. And this isn't a peculiar experience only for Sarah. There are many here tonight who have been visited by the Lord. Maybe sometimes with difficulties and trials and discouragement and even despair. But then again, God has visited us with blessing. God has touched us. God has strengthened our will, our body, to do what naturally and normally we could not do. God visited Sarah, enabling her to do what, humanly speaking, it was impossible to do. And maybe some of you are facing exactly the same situation that Sarah and Abraham were. There is some barrier. There is some difficulty. Physical. Psychological. Maybe even spiritual. And God will visit you, removing that barrier and enabling you to accomplish and do his will. Notice what it, afterwards he said. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. God is faithful to his promises. God is a faithful God to his promises. Do you believe the promises of God? Do you really believe the promises of God? And the thing that impresses me about this narrative is that uh, Sarah didn't always believe these promises. Do you remember a few chapters back, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, uh, the God has closed my womb. I think that shows that uh, Sarah was a bit irritated. She was a bit uh, complaining. But uh, said, God has closed my womb. Abraham, take Hagar, the handmaid, and raise up a child to you by her. Sarah hadn't always believed. Sarah hadn't always trusted in the word of God. You know, it's one thing to believe a promise, and it's another thing to wait patiently for its fulfillment. When God makes a promise to us, 
He expects us to have faith, to believe it, to have hope, to anticipate it, to have patience, to wait for its fulfillment. It's one thing to believe, and it's another thing to wait patiently for the fulfillment of this promise. For all these years, Abraham had been waiting, and there was no son. Sarah had been waiting, and there was no son. And so now, at long last, she says, and God has done what he said he would do. Now, there's a word of comfort here, and there's a word of warning here. Let's take the good news first. God has said, God will fulfill what he said he would do with respect to each one of us. God has promised to strengthen us and enable us. God has promised to forgive our sins. God has promised to cleanse us. God has promised to enable us to live and resist sin. He's promised to show us his way and his will. God has promised he will be faithful faithful to his word. You remember Paul being shipwrecked. And uh, there he had a vision at night. And he called the crew and the passengers together the next day. And he says, I believe God that he will do as he has revealed it unto me. Oh, we need to trust God. He is faithful to do what he said he'd do. Faithful to bless us as he said he would. But he's also said that those that disobey him, those that de deny him, those that reject and refuse him, that he will punish, that he will chastise, that he'll ultimately forsake from his presence. God is faithful to his word. Oh, if there's any soul here tonight who has never believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has never looked to him for salvation, God is faithful. The soul that sinned, it shall die, without remedy, without recourse, not because God hasn't provided salvation, not because he doesn't love you, not because he isn't compassionate and merciful, but because you have refused to accept his son as the means, the only means of your forgiveness of sin and salvation. God is faithful to his word. Then he says <clears throat> that they call the name of this child Isaac. 
Isaac. Isaac means to laugh. But uh, who laughs? There are not many Isaacs in the Scripture. There are many Joshua's in Scripture. There are many John's in Scripture. But there is only one, as far as I can find, Isaac. Laugh. Isaac means laughter. Why? Is he called by this name? Who laughs? You turn, you don't need to go back. Uh, but uh, in Genesis 17, 17, when God first told Abraham that he was going to have a son, it said that Abraham laughed. I don't know, we may have some psychologists here uh, I'd like to give them five or ten minutes. They're prepared. Uh, laughter is a very interesting thing. We laugh when we're scared. We laugh when we're happy. We laugh when we're when uh, uh, in, in irony, in mockery, laughing. Laughing's the most interesting study. Why do people laugh? When do people laugh? And what do people laugh? He was called laughter. Ah, uh, because Abraham, his father, when the angel first told him that he was going to have a son, he laughed. I think that was the laughter of delight. Because there was nothing that was deeper in the heart of Abraham than just that. To have a son. To have an heir to be a father. He laughed with delight. Then a little bit later in the next chapter, in 1812, it says that Sarah, when the angel was talking over there, the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate was talking to Abraham and said that he was going to have a son. Uh, just behind the curtain, they didn't have any acoustic tile like we have in this building to isolate the sound from one to the other. And uh, Sarah was up the other side of the tent, the curtain uh, eavesdropping. Huh? And uh, so she heard the angels say, well, those men, hey, how ignorant can you be? I couldn't have a child. Uh, anyway, I'm far too old to have a child. Biologically, it's an impossibility. She laughed. It was a laughter of doubt. It was a laughter of doubt. A laughter of irony, mockery. I can't have, how foolish can people be to think that I would have a son? You see, Sarah didn't always believe this promise. But nevertheless, God fulfilled his word. God fulfilled it. Even though so often we are unworthy, we don't believe, but still God fulfilled his word. Then you have here 
Sarah says that when she gave birth to the son, wasn't a daughter, it was a son. So he called his name Isaac. She laughed. It was the laughter of joy. It was the laughter of satisfaction. The laughter of accomplishment. Here, God has done the supernatural. God has worked a miracle. God has done the unexpected. God has visited and we have a child. I because because everybody that lives will laugh. There and Abraham, a hundred years old. Who ever heard it? They have a child. So it was called laughter. Then the child was circumcised. Then the child was circumcised. Why circumcised? Because circumcision was the seal and symbol of the Abrahamic covenant. This child Abraham, this child of Abraham, Isaac now, is within the pale, within the limits, within the blessing included in this great Abrahamic covenant of chapter 12. There's a good deal of relationship, I think, between circumcision and baptism, although they're not strictly identical, although many feel they are. But why do we baptize our children? There are some churches that baptize even infants, just as soon as they uh, are born physically. Uh, others don't believe in child baptism or pedo-baptism, but they only baptize, they believe in believer's baptism. And they believe that uh, that birth uh, is what they're talking about is spiritual birth. And it's only after spiritual birth should they be baptized. But whichever, you believe in infant baptism or whether you believe in believer's baptism, baptism is the seal and the symbol of the new covenant, the covenant of grace. That you're no longer just secular. You're not, no longer just anybody, just John Doe. Now you are a member and participant and heir, a recipient of the blessings of the new covenant. He was circumcised. Then, at some times later, verses 6 or 7, and she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have nursed a child? And the child grew, verse 8, and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day. Here you have the child born. God was faithful to his word. The naming of the child, Isaac, laughed. Because 
of the joy and satisfaction at the fulfillment of the promise of God. And you're laughing tonight because God has fulfilled his promise in your life. Are others rejoicing and laughing with you because God has done the miraculous in your life? Because he's touched you? We sing about that. He's touched me. He touched me. Yes. He touched Sarah and Abraham. You remember Paul over there in the book of Hebrews? said that Abraham believed God considering his body as death. But even then, biological, physical impossibility didn't destroy that faith in God. Oh, beloved, I, I feel severely rebuked. So often when I read these great passages of Scripture, these great servants, and how they trusted and believed God. Visibility zero. Humanly speaking, impossible. But nevertheless, they trusted God. We had another great example of this in the New Testament. Peter, you remember, was in prison, chained. He was going to be beheaded the next day. And here you have a little church, a little group of believers. James wasn't with him. He was pastor of the church, but he wasn't there. I don't know why, but he wasn't. But here you have a little group of believers believing that God would somehow save Peter that night. Chained hand and foot behind three great iron doors, all padlocked. How could God ever get Peter out of there? But he's dead. You may be chained to something tonight. And you say, oh, how can God deliver me? Yes, he can, beloved. He's the God of the impossible. The God that granted Isaac to Abraham and to Sarah. That delivered Peter. And he was weaned. Turn quickly to Psalm 131. Psalm 131. Weaning in Scripture has a spiritual implication. Has a spiritual implication. Now, weaning in uh, other countries is different. Mothers don't often don't nurse children here, but. Uh, Sometimes they nurse children for three years. I remember speaking once way in the interior of Brazil. The child was close to five. And all during the service, there that child nursed. Close to five years of age. They wean much later there than they do here. So Isaac was possibly three, between somewhere between three and five years old. And he was weaned. Why do they say that? That's an insignificant, apparently. But it has a spiritual truth. There are a number of passages of Scripture that bring it out. 
But uh, here is what, Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters, or in things too high for me. <laughs> I wish we all could say that. Sometimes we're tempted to get in things that are too high, too wonderful for us. When you try to explain election and trinity and a number of other things. Now, surely, I have behaved and quieted myself like a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even like a weaned child. I have behaved like a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even like a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth forever. What's he talking about? As a child grows up, he's dependent upon his family, his mother. All of his food and strength comes from the natural parent. Now that he's weaned, now that he's going to break from that, now he's going to be independent, now he's going to trust God as he trusted his mother, now he's going to trust God as he trusted his father, is no longer depending purely on natural, physical food, but now on spiritual. He's a mature. It's a picture of a Christian. Immediately when you're saved, you're so dependent on books and on a pastor and on uh, services and everything. And then the day finally comes when you realize that you can understand the Scripture yourself. You can feed, the, feed upon the Word of God yourself. And you become weaned from these things. And it's a glorious day when you get Christians that are weaned. So many of them, and all oh, this is the cause of so many disasters on the mission field. A young person accustomed to a real thrive, thriving, growing, animated church here with us singing in the choir and the activities, and then goes way out in Timbuktu in the field. And he doesn't have any religious magazine, doesn't have any religious radio, doesn't have any religious friends, doesn't have any church doesn't have any choir, and they fall apart because they don't know how to feed themselves in the Word of God. Oh, Christians, be weaned from all of the superficial, necessary truths, uh, but not what the Spirit of God wants you to be a mature adult. One who feeds himself through the study of the Word, through dependence upon the Spirit of God, through walking, walking in harmony with God. Why do so many Christians backslide? Why do they get cold and indifferent? 
Why do they stop going to church? Why do they fall victim to all these isms? Because they've never been weaned. Never been weaned. Abraham had a great supper. This was a great day in the life of Isaac. And it's a great day in the life of a Christian when he can stand on his own two feet and feed himself. No longer to be nursing. Our churches are filled with nursing babes. They have never been weaned. So he was weak. Now let's look to the second section of this chapter. Verse 9. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born. Unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son. For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. In all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a great nation because of thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and took bread and a skin of water, and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and gave her the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba, and the water was spent in the skin. And she went and sat down apart from him a good way off, as it were a bowshot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat apart and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard her voice of the Lord. And the angel of God called unto Hagar out of heaven, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, God hath heard thy voice. Let's start the back and go up the last verse, and then we'll pick up the others. This always has impressed me. How long has it been since you have wept? Here was a mother. She had a child. No baby. No baby. Some 13 years of age. She'd been in Abraham and Sarah's home. Sarah had said to Abraham, Take Hagar. Abraham had said to the Lord, Why cannot Ishmael live before me? Abraham loved Ishmael. 
Abraham wanted Ishmael. And now Ishmael is cast out and threatened to die. And Hagar, an Egyptian, wept. God answers tears. A very interesting study is the study of tears in Scripture. Christ wept at Lazarus' tomb. Christ wept over that great city of Jerusalem. Christ wept with strong crying and tears. Paul tells us in Hebrews, when he wrestled with the fact of God, of becoming sin for you and for me. Tears. Oh, beloved, are there any tears in your eyes, any tears in your voice, any tears in your heart for a wayward son, a wayward daughter, for a husband? For a mother or father, so many even of our of our students have unsaved parents, unsaved brothers. In the day of prayer, so often in little groups when we get together, they break down and pray for their mother or father. Here was Hagar being cast out. Hagar that was taken by Abraham because of his waywardness and backslidden sin. But here she cries unto God, and God hears. God hears. Now turn with me to Galatians 4. Galatians 4. A difficult passage, and maybe one that you have read quite often and had difficulty with. It isn't much comfort, but misery loves company, and uh, you've got lots of company. Galatians 4, verse 19. Now remember what Paul is facing here in Galatians. Paul is facing, you remember Galatians is written about 49 or 50 between the first and second missionary journey. I take it that Galatians was written before the 15th chapter of the book of Acts, before 50 AD. Paul had just been in Galatians. Paul had just visited this area and had come back and uh, the churches there had founded these churches, Iconium, Lister, and Derby, you remember, and had come back to uh, Antioch and was going down to Jerusalem, and some uh, men from these churches came and said that the Judaizers were devastating, absolutely devastating, decimating all these churches with their legalism, with their Judaism. Uh, and so Paul scratches off this letter. A tremendous letter. And uh, as we see that although we right here in Mid-South Bible College tonight 
we're maybe not afflicted with the Judaism that Paul uh, had, but nevertheless we are. With a legalistic religion, we certainly are. And we'll see this before we're through. Now, my children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you, I desire to present with you, with you now and to change my tone, for I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, I get that, you that desire to be under the law, you that want to live by program, you that want to live by ritual, you that want to live by good works, I'm not talking only about unsaved, I'm talking about Christians. Well, Christians are the same way. With rules and regulations, good work. Tell me now, you that desire to live under the law, many of us are afraid of revival because it would break up our church plans, our church program. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman, Sarah. But he, who was of the bondwoman, was born after the flesh. But he of the free woman was a promise. See? Isaac was a promise. Ishmael was of the bondwoman. They were born of different mothers under different conditions. Which things are an allegory? Which things are a type? For these are two covenants. See, now it takes answer to Jerusalem, which now is. You see the Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free. Jerusalem, which is above, is free, the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she who hath a husband. Who was the one that had a husband? Hagar. Who was the desolate one? Who was uh, who gave birth because of promise? It was Sarah. And she will have more than the children of the desolate. Now, we, brethren, as Isaac was of the children of promise, but as when he that was born after the flesh persecuted them that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. And the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So that, brethren, we are not children of the bond, but of the free. Now, to try to help you a little bit, we notice through the reading of this that first, there is a historical narrative. Paul takes this from the chapter 21 of Genesis. 
And he says that Hagar and her son Ishmael is a type of those that are under bondage. And Sarah and her son Isaac are a type of those who are free. Abraham had two sons. Abraham had two wives. He had Hagar, which was taken in Egypt, which he should never have had anything to do with. But God overruled. God overruled. Uh, this is constantly true, you notice, that there is a beautiful blending between that which is evil and that which is good. God doesn't only re, uh, God doesn't only oppose that which is evil. God uses that which is evil and makes out of this evil. He doesn't make it good, but he uses it for good. The greatest example of this, of course, is in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here Satan, because of his hate and the hate of the Jews and of the Romans, were putting Christ to death. It was a terrible thing. Peter says over there in Acts 2 that it was wicked men that did it. But what they did was absolutely within the decree and the determinate counsel of God. But nevertheless, they, the wicked men, were responsible for what they did. And at the same time, when these men were crucifying Christ and pulling out his beard and spitting upon him and beating him, God, God was manifesting his love. The greatest act of love and of mercy that this world has ever seen. The two go hand in hand. It was wrong for Abraham to take up. Yeah, uh, wrong for Abraham to take Hagar. But God uses it here as an illustration. Abraham had the two wives, Hagar and Sarah. He had the two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. He had them both by natural generation. But they came from different mothers. And what made the difference was not the father. They had the same father. But what made the difference was the mother. One was according to the flesh. One was perfectly natural and normal, biologically. The other was a promise. Ishmael was the son of a slave. Isaac, the son of a free woman. Now that's the historic thing. Now Paul makes Now Paul uses this as a type. He calls it an allegory. He says that these two women represent two different covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. The other, I suppose we could say, Calvary, although Paul doesn't mention it. The other is the first is the Mosaic covenant. The first is Judaism. The second is the new covenant heavenly Jerusalem. You see, after the resurrection of Christ, after his ascension back into glory, 
You'll remember at the occasion of his death, the temple, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. All of Judaism, all of the temple sacrifices had been fulfilled. That veil that separated the throne, the presence of God, from the outside world was broken. There was now a new and living way into the presence of God. There was no need for the blood of bulls and of goats and of sacrifices anymore. It was all over. Without a doubt, the Jews showed or made a new veil. And Paul says that this worship now is of the earthly Jerusalem. It's a religion of legalism, of Judaism. It's Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai could never free anybody. Legalism can never free anybody. Because he that commits sin is a servant of sin. The law, as Paul says, has dominion over one as long as they live. Now it's true that this is not primarily a Jewish congregation. There are very few of us that are Jews and that are afflicted with Judaism, but just say evil things. And that's the reason why Paul was talking there to the Galatians, and it certainly definitely applies to us. Many of us are legalistic in our religion. What do I mean? I mean that we seek to gain merit before God by obeying rules and regulations. Now, there's nothing wrong with not smoking. I don't believe we should. There's nothing wrong in many other things that we do. But, I get this. When we do these things, we don't smoke, we don't dance, you don't drink, you don't listen to TV, you don't do this and you don't do that, and you do pay the tithe and you go to church and you do visit. You try to live the best that you can. It's a salvation of work. And every once in a while, I was just speaking in class just the other day on election. And one of the students came up to me and said, Mr. Davidson, you've done more for me in this class than any class I've taken at Mid-South. I am one of these legalistic people, and I've tried to work here. I've tried to live a holy life. I've tried to satisfy the pastor. I've tried to satisfy my parents. And I'm always concerned about doing it. Have I done enough? Is, is my work good enough? Is it a, a great enough quality? You see, that's legalism. And there are many Christians that are enslaved in bondage to this very thing. Oh, that we might see. As this passage says at the conclusion, cast out what? Hagar and her son. What's her son represent? Her son represents all those that in this passage are under the law. I'll get you in just a minute. All those that are under the law. 
all those that were Judaizers, all those that were troubling the church there in, in Antioch, in Lystra, in Derby, in Galatia. We're talking about all so many Christians today that are bound by legalism, trying to do good works that God, with which God will be satisfied. You see, we can't do good works to satisfy God. It's God that wants to work in and through us by His Spirit. Cast out Hagar and her son. Yes, how do you get away with from that? Uh, How do you? <laughs> you see, this must have been a this must have been a heart-rending experience for Abraham. Abraham had just said, Oh God, why can't Ismael, Ismael live before me? Why can't he be a thief? You see, there's so much within us. Oh, there is. There's so much within us that I have to do something for my salvation. I have to earn my salvation. I have to merit my salvation. And, of course, now that you're saved, you realize that you couldn't do anything for your salvation. But now that you're Christian, you ask an average church congregation, what are they trusted in for salvation? What are they trusted in for forgiveness? What are they trusted in to get to heaven? And, well, they say, keeping a golden rule, doing the best I can, my good work. How many good works do you have to do? How good do they have to be? How many? You see, you can't get to heaven. I'm talking to Christians at this moment. By legalism. You're Ishmael. You're the son of bondage. You have never been freed by the grace and inworking of the Spirit of God. He and he alone is the priest. You see, I'm not working for God. I'm not doing my thing for God. It's God that wants to work in and through me to do his thing. See, I've got to just, just as you did with salvation, you just have to sit back and let God undertake and do just so in your life as a Christian, you have to just trust God. To let the Spirit of God do His mighty work within you. Stop trying to be good. Stop trying to do enough good work. Let God just trust. I remember one time seeing a rookie. He was a telephone employee. He was troubleshooting on a high pole. And he climbed up that pole. Then he was working on those wires, and he was hanging on with one hand and working over here and then hanging on with the other hand. 
And an old hand down on the ground said, Take your hands off the pole and trust in your strap. See, we're trying to work. We're all Cast out, Hagar. Cast out her son. Ishmael. All you're going to preach. Yeah. This one that owned God had worked a miracle. This one who had trusted in the promises of God. Trust in Ishmael, who was called laughter of joy and satisfaction. This one who had been circumcised. This one who had entered into the covenant of God. This one who had been weaned. There it is. Had been weaned from all people. This is baby stuff. This is carnality. And trust God. Then he says, there's a personal thing here. He says over there in 21, he says, but what's the difference now? He says, the son, there will be pain of persecution. Yes, just as there was in Hagar's family. Oh, uh, I'd like to discuss this, uh, the uh, internal contention and difficulty and strife within that home. Yes, there was. But that's a whole other story. But uh, just as Hagar, just as Ishmael was persecuting Isaac, just so, all those who are of Isaac's seed, all those who are of faith, they're going to suffer persecution. Expect it. But just as Isaac had the privilege of the inheritance, just so, you who are true sons of Isaac will enjoy the inheritance that is in Christ. Cast off. Agar with her son. Well, the time's up. Just the last section of this book. The last section of this chapter, better. The last section of this chapter says that Abraham, after this experience, after this experience, went and made peace with Abimelech. See, this is, this is the evidence. He had been at war with Abimelech. But when he got his relationship with God right, then he got his relationship with his fellow men right. You remember that scripture that says that when we're right with God, God makes us even our enemies to be at peace with us. That's the great teaching of the rest of this chapter of 21 of Genesis, where Abraham makes peace with Abimelech. Now, Abraham is separated, separated from his father's land, separated from his father, his family, separated from Lot, separated from Hagar. Now, Abraham is entirely thrust into the hands of God. Abraham is thoroughly a weaned, a spiritual mentor. Now, you see his proper relationship with his fellow men. No longer is this animosity. They had this well. Abraham had been irked and, uh, and peeved at a biblical because he had taken this well. 
Abimelech says, oh, I don't know anything about it. Whether he did or not, I don't know. But he said, I don't know. But no matter. Let's forget that. And Abraham gave him sheep and cattle. And they built a wall. And Abraham did what? Look at the end of this chapter. Look at the end of the last verse of this chapter. And Abraham called on the name of the Lord. And he gave him a new name. God revealed himself in a new way. The everlasting God. Amen. Now, now, Abraham is ready for chapter 22. God says unto Abraham, Go, offer your son. You've burned your bridges. You've cast out Hagar. You've cast out Ishmael. Hagar and Ishmael are gone. Now, God comes around and says, Abraham, offer Isaac. Whoa, what a tremendous test. But he'd already, he'd already trusted God, the God of the impossible, the God that could give him Isaac, the God that could make him laugh. He'd already trusted God when he wrestled. Shall I cast out Hagar or shall I not? Shall I cast out Ishmael or shall I not? I must obey God. You remember Paul says over in Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit of God. What does that mean? To be controlled by the Spirit of God. This is what happened to Abraham in chapter 21 that enabled him to go and offer his Isaac in chapter 22. I was in the church Sunday, and there were two or three men from the prison that came and gave testimony. I had been speaking earlier on this passage. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Be under the control, the dominated by the Spirit of God. And here with this man, he says, I've been wanted in eight cities, eight states, and not wanted in any of the others. Here I have a hundred and some years in prison. The Lord, and I was in a city, and I planned to kill a man. And I was saved, just reading the Word, soundly saved. And the Spirit of God said unto me, Go turn yourself in to the FBI. Oh, no. I've been in prison. I don't want to go back to prison. I don't want that life. I'll be there the rest of my life. Go back to prison. Turn yourself in to the FBI. And so he wrestled with it and finally said, yes, I'll go. And this is a convert, incidentally, of John Bramley. Most of you know John. But uh, he said, yes, I'll go. See, that's what's being filled with the Spirit of God. That's what's being controlled by the Spirit of God. God said unto Abraham, cast out Hagar and this man. And he is under the control of the Spirit of God. He said, go make friends with Abimelech. And he did. Go offer up Isaac. And he did. God was preparing Abraham for this tremendous experience. But I can't close. There may be some unsaved person here tonight. 
You're an Ishmael. You're an Ishmael. You're trusting your own good works. You're trusting a golden rule. You're trusting your conscience. You're trying to be good to the family, good to yourself, and good to your neighbor. You're working. Yeah. And you're doing good work. I'm not denying that. But they can't satisfy God. We've been in Brazil. I come home with a pocket full of cruzeiros, the currency in Brazil. I go to Shoney's if I want to buy a hamburger. Give them 50 cruzeiro bills. Yeah. Huh. Doesn't no good here. No good here. That's good money. But no good here. See, that's what God will say. All your good work. All that you're trying to do is satisfy men here. They do satisfy men here. Yeah. But they won't satisfy God. They won't satisfy God. Cast out hatred. Ishmael, stop trying. And the same yourself. Trust God and Him alone. For you who are Christians, for you who are Ishmaelites, because we're all here tonight, my friend, either of Ishmael or Isaac. You don't want to be other. No halfway. Oh, maybe some of you Christians are trying, working so hard. You're getting out. Trying to be good. Trying to do something on merit, honor. to give you peace and assurance. Oh, that's all of the flesh. Cast it out. And trust the indwelling Spirit of God. Submit yourself to Him. And He he will lead you, guide you, bless you, work in and through you. His will, his way. Let him do his will. Begin. Not my will, but thine. Our Father, oh, how we thank thee, Lord, for thy word. How we thank thee. First, clear, simple peace. Oh, how it blesses our hearts. Lord, we pray that thy spirit has used thy servant, Lord, to instruct and inspire and encourage many Christians here tonight. And oh, if there's any unsaved that's trying to do good, trying to satisfy God, trying to get brownie points before God by his own efforts, Oh, may he realize that's all of the flesh. It's all of an unsaved. It's all filthy rags. It all comes from the sick and depraved of sinning enemy heart. It can't be good. Oh God, help them to repent before thee. 
Help them, Lord, to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who loved them, who gave himself for us, and whoever lives for us. These things, Lord, we ask with thy blessing upon each one here tonight. Amen.